Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Devannon Hubert. He hosts the Sex, Drugs, and Jesus podcast, and he has his book, his memoir, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, a memoir of self-destruction and resurrection. Had a great talk with him. He joined us from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We talked about drugs, Jesus, church, and um, it got really interesting. I really enjoyed talking with him. Um, it's one of those podcasts that you have that you just feel really good after the conversation, and that's how this one was. It was just Great talking with him again. Check out his podcast, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus. Um, and then also, if you want to check out his memoir, I highly recommend it. Uh, go to sexdrugsandjesus.com to order his book. Or if you want to go to the, through the app on Amazon, you can order it on Amazon. So we're going to go ahead and dive on in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Good. How you doing? Oh, just fabulous. Happy Thursday to you. I would just say happy Friday because it needs to get here already. Oh man, speak for yourself. Friday's my worst work day. <laughs> but um, yeah, Fuck I'm... Fridays. Whoever cares for Friday anyway? <laughs> You're totally lame. <laughs> yeah. No, my job's fun. I, I just I ask my double, but I play music out on the Captive Island, so really I shouldn't complain. It's just really hot right now, so it's a long day. Music. <laughs> so yeah, I um I've been reading your book. I'm about a third of the way through. I was hoping to have it done, but we did some traveling this week and I thought I'd read while I'm traveling and it never happens. Uh, I'm with my wife and we end up just not. So if I'm asking some questions about your life that's in the book, that's why I might not know because I've gotten through right now. You just moved to Houston in the book. You're about to get to the good shit. Yeah. I haven't gotten to the drugs yet. I mean, you open with that. But then you go back. So it's like, I, I feel like I know a lot about you. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, like, just to, you know, get to know somebody before you even meet them. Well, I do like to be vulnerable and transparent. And, you know, I've done it all at this point. So may as well tell it. For sure, man. And, um, and I love what you're doing with your podcast. And so I, and I haven't got to, uh, like, so I'm going to kind of cover a lot of uh, stuff about sex, drugs, and Jesus. And that's your podcast also. This is true. I love the, um, the the logo you have for your podcast the, the purple swirly oh thanks I, I painted it i think yours looks a little more um like professionally done <laughs> i painted mine but well i think yours fits like what you're doing on your show and everything like that and i love the uh the titles like the topics that you cover as well thank you yeah i just um i've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time actually and it was 2020 when i was on lockdown that I actually had time to learn how to record on a computer and start getting into the, you know, actual stuff. So I was like, you know, I'm going to do this. And I think I'm not alone. I think so many people started doing podcasts after the lockdown because the same reasons, but yeah, the war on drugs has always been extremely uh, important to me. I mean, not important to me, the opposite of important. Like it needs to end. It should have ended. It should have never begun. Uh, It's a health issue. It's never been a criminal issue, but they've turned it into the cops are now, deciding what chemicals we can and can't use and it's you know it's not doing any good for society Mm-mm. and i'm on a new psychedelic journey and everything like that because i have never really tried them before i used to sell them but now that the um 
the knowledge is returning to us about the therapeutic value of, say, psilocybin and mescaline and MDMA. Um, I'm hunting down the shit. I did the IV ketamine thing the other day um, since they legalized, oh, special Kenny. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and then later in the day, I'm talking with a with a therapist that I've found up in Portland to see what psychedelics he has. And I'm going to jet my ass up there to uh, have an experience because the shit ain't legal here in Louisiana. So then there's a lady who runs the, that's like the people of color site. Psycho um psychoactive coalition in New York. Have you heard of it? Um no. Yeah, it's like pretty cool. Once I find out about it, I'll tell you about it. But this woman apparently goes around speaking about the positive benefits of psychedelics and shit. And um it's like a huge like nonprofit that she's created, it seems. So that's awesome. I, I personally love psychedelics. I, I have noticed some things online when I'm in some psychedelic groups on Facebook, Psychedelic Society and Psychonaut Society. And I do notice there's a higher um, percentage of people that are kind of broken, but I, it's not because psychedelics have anything to do with brain, you know, correlation doesn't prove causation. It's more broken people find their way to drugs. And so they're, they're on their journey to fix themselves. But yeah, some of the, some people, so psychedelics, and this is why I think the new movement with psychedelics is very science-based and medical-based and like, let's not uh, ruin it for everybody like we did in the sixties by saying, everybody take psychedelics and have fun. It's like, no, let's, let's be careful with it. Cause these are very powerful drugs that are amazing and very beneficial if done in the right set and setting. So. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you about ketamine because I actually, was debating. I was going to go do ketamine at the center here um, for depression. I, I suffer from depression. I don't. I wouldn't say major depression. I don't. I'm pr- pretty good at dealing with my depression through exercise and stuff. But some days when it hits you, you, you just can't exercise. You just can't find yourself to do anything. So I thought about ketamine, but it's four thousand dollars. So I was like, and you have to do the whole six weeks at least at our center. So that made me not do it. But then they sent me a coupon for a thousand dollars off. So now I'm debating. I'm like, it's still a lot of money, but. So, and what, what was your experience with ketamine? I'm curious. I would not go back to the clinic that I went to. Now, if it's like anything else in this plane of existence, then, you know, every clinic is going to be different. And so I didn't feel any euphoria. I didn't have any hallucinations. I didn't have any out-of-body experience. And so I don't know if my expectations were too high. But this place, you don't have to commit to the whole eight series or whatever. You can just do one, two, three, whatever. Although they do highly encourage you to come right back like the next week. And so I didn't feel anything. That's not to suggest that it didn't help. Because my mind did like, I felt like I was really hung over really fast. Really. really. It was hard for me to balance and stuff like that. But I didn't have you know any emotions i wasn't giggling i wasn't laughing i wasn't crying i wasn't doing any of those things like what i've seen on the certain documentaries that i've seen which is what prompted me to get on this journey and the, and i asked the doctor nurse whatever the fuck she is and um she was like well the first dose is um based on body weight i'm like 220 230 pounds and she's all like can't just pump you full of ketamine you might go into a k-hole and i'm like well, bitch, the whole point is for me to get pumped full of ketamine. That's why I'm here. I thought I thought they put, they purposely put you in a K-hole was what I was my understanding was you went under almost. Everybody is fucking different. And I'm all like, 
So I don't know if it's a marketing thing with her, but I wasn't happy with her. So I would ask the question, wherever you go, how much ketamine am I going to get on the first time? And they put a bunch of shit in me um, to like knock off the uh, side effects and stuff like that. And her assistant just started putting shit in the IV and she wasn't telling me what it was. So I had to ask her like, okay, what's that? You know, what's this? So they weren't super professional. Uh, I feel like if I, I would try it again, but I would wait till I'm in a more progressive city. You know, what, I would do it if I'm in what, LA, what, New York. What, what city are you in? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay, that's where you're originally from, right? Mm-hmm. So, so and how far is that from New Orleans? About 40 minutes. And I had thought, 40, 45 minutes to an hour, I had thought um, maybe I should just go to New Orleans and get this done and stay in a hotel. But then I was like, I don't know what frame of mind I'm going to be in. When yeah. it's over, I'm probably just going to go get in my own damn bed. And so, but I'm not even going to go to New Orleans. If I get it done again, I'm going to New York. I will go to Paris. Milan, darling, Milan yeah. is not this basic-ass city that I live in. <laughs> well, New Orleans is one of my favorite cities. And um, last time I was there, I, we, you know, we got pretty drunk the first night. So me and my buddy, and I wasn't drunk enough to go get an IV, you know, for a hangover, but I'd never done it. And I was documenting everything for a podcast. So I was like, let's go to the IV clinic and get the IV for the drip to secure the hangover. And it was like 150 bucks, which I, I don't recommend. I think a Gatorade would have done about the same. But um, they had a ketamine clinic right below. So I was like, let's go to the ketamine clinic and see if we can do that. And I walk in, I got like a, a bright colored fanny pack on. And my, uh, you know, I just, just looking all like I just woke up and I'm just like, hey, if we do ketamine, like I fly out tomorrow, is there any way we can get it done today? And they're just like, uh, yeah, you need like a doctor's reference. Like we have to meet with you. Like this isn't just like a come in and get fucked up thing. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But, um, but I, I, again, I, and I, that's how I remember uh, Louisiana was like that with uh, you didn't have to do all six weeks. Like here, I don't know if it's a law in Florida or if just that's the policy of these specific uh, clinics. But everyone I've talked to, in Florida, I've t- talked to the one in Tampa and the one here, and they both require you to go through the whole six weeks for, for like $4,000 worth which insurance doesn't cover at all. So it's like, all right, well, that's a, I don't know if I'm depressed. I'll be more depressed if that money's gone, maybe then the ketamine would help me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. That's, that's too much of a commitment without any guarantees. Yeah. And it's another thing. Yeah. What if I do the first session and I, and I don't like it and it doesn't help. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm good. Well, then you lost all the money. So it's like, I, I've been kind of tossing back and forth about it. I think I'm just going to wait. I think the prices are going to come down. I think it's going to, as it gets more used. Also, they're going to be opening up uh, in some states. And this is what you're talking about. Uh, psychedelic centers, like places like Portland, places that have decriminalized psychedelics, you'll start to see psilocybin clinics. And I'm curious about those because I, I I use, have you used mushrooms? Not only so. Have you ever used acid or any any uh, psychedelic like that? Acid a bunch of times, but again, I never had any strong hallucinations. Really? Um, I mean, the first time I took acid, like though my world started melting around me, and it was uh, it was actually pretty terrifying for the first half of the trip. But then once I kind of settled in and realized I wasn't going to be there forever, I actually really enjoyed it. But uh, mushrooms are great because they're. Um, they only last about four to six hours. So after four hours, you're kind of coming back pretty much. And also you can e- easily pick your dose. If you do an eighth, you're not going to, you're going to see, you know, and again, it's not more, it's less, less about the hallucinations as it is just having a great experience and feeling happy and feeling connected. And that's mostly what I experienced with psychedelics. It's not like, well, I didn't, you know, cause I remember when I was young, it was all like, well, I didn't get to any visuals. That means that you know, it wasn't strong enough, but then you get older, you're like, who cares about the visuals? How connected did I feel to everything? And sometimes that's all that matters. And 
I remember one of the best trips I had was in the Gulf of Mexico here, just laying in the water. My buddy grabbed a chair and went and sat in the water in his chair up to his neck. And just, we were laughing. And I remember laying down my, one of my friends just said, you know, you realize that the water we're laying in right now is connected to every other body of water on the earth. And I was just like, it just like, hit me. And, and it's these kind of things that almost sound um, like you think they're profound, but if somebody says it, it just sounds kind of like, oh yeah, you hippie, like whatever. Like they just don't seem as profound afterwards, but when you feel it and you're not saying it, it is profound. It really is. I feel you. I feel all of that. So what's your next gonna uh, psychedelic journey going to be? Do you have any, any ideas? For the one I can find. So I'm going to talk to this doctor today at around, if I get my talking to him. 4 p.m. Central Time, and we'll see what he says. I need to know what he can get because it's it's odd when I go on all these different websites and I look up all of these places and states where psilocybin is legal. The clinics are like, yeah, we do the psilocybin therapy, but we can't help you get psilocybin. So I don't know if that's just something they have to put on the internet or what. Uh, yeah, well, I've talked to people in Denver. I talked to a psychedelic journalist, and he said that like he had a friend that was a guide for that for this uh for mushrooms but yeah you had to bring your own mushrooms because they could get arrested if an undercover officer went in there and was like all right i'm here for the session and they provided them drugs they could get busted so they make you bring your own and for a lot of people that is a problem like i'm lucky because i know i know one place i can get them but if that place stops then i'm gonna have to then it's, how do you find another place you just gotta ask around until eventually you find somebody that has a connection new orleans i would think would be easy I, i've um randomly found things in that city easily um one of the things let me ask you this what about ecstasy have you done that yeah yeah is it are you do you still are you still doing it because i know right now from what i've read there's a problem with uh fentanyl in the uh, contaminating the pills on the streets and stuff i haven't done ecstasy in quite a while me neither i can't even find it and i think it's um because of that contamination, a lot of uh, people that sell psychedelics aren't selling it right now because they've actually had people in clubs dying from it again. And that hadn't happened. I mean, because MDMA is actually a pretty harmless substance. It's more harmless than alcohol, but um, they've outlawed it. So now it's way more harmful than al alcohol because it's illegal. So it goes back to the war on drugs. For now, but they're they're working on the, uh, making it illegal again because they've been doing the experiments, especially on veterans like at the VA and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So they're expecting to get it reapproved either this year or next year. Well, it'll be approved. Yeah, it'll be approved for um, medical use, and which will which will have to make it scheduled. Have to move it from uh, the schedule one to a schedule. I guess they probably do schedule two. But the advantage could be is if they start producing them in legitimate um, pill factories, then you might see some of that on the streets. But uh, they're going to say that's going to be one of the things they're trying to avoid. I'm saying, well, we want we want access to these drugs. I mean, people drugs like psychedelics, MDMA. Um, acid, I shouldn't call it acid, that's negative connotations there. LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, these drugs need to be available for people. And you don't have to make it like, like, oh, just go to Walgreens and pick up your LSD. No, you can go to a doctor, but it should be affordable for people to go do sessions and 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 very fun settings to go out into nature. They should be able to go out into the, you know, go on a hike and eat mushrooms. I love being in nature on mushrooms. But the problem now I have is as I'm getting older, I'm you know, almost 40. I don't want to be in public doing drugs because it's, it's not a good look and it's illegal and I don't want to get arrested. So it's like, I'm only going to do it at my home now, which kind of sucks. I like going on camping and doing stuff like that. Unfortunately, man, hopefully in our lifetime, we see everything decriminalized across the country. Then we can just be our happy high selves and be done with it. 
I really hope so. That and and we are st- seeing uh, a kind of into the war on drugs slowly in this country and in other countries, even um, like Canada, it's happening faster. Uh, Portugal, it's already uh, they've decriminalized. Spain, a lot of people don't realize, has been decriminalized since I believe 1973. Um, but some other countries are coming around. But some other countries, like uh, countries in Asia, are really, really harsh with their drug policies. China's one of them. Philippines, they're basically committing uh, genocide against drug users. They're just murdering anybody caught with drugs. And um, then you have countries like Russia where they're, and I haven't actually seen the news, but they were going to send it. I know she was found guilty. She's found guilty. And send it. Here it is right here. Brittany Griner found guilty in Russia drug trial, sentenced to nine years in prison. Now, I'm sorry, a vape cartridge with THC in it, and you're going to spend nine years in prison? That's absolutely absurd. However, I've talked about this on Twitter. The um, I, I 100% she should be out yesterday. This is fucking stupid. We need to get her home. But the idea that our country is talking about trading a terrorist to get her out. And again, I'm, I, I, how you feel about that, I don't, you know, I don't know. But the weird thing is, is that our country is willing to do that for a cannabis arrest in another country when we have our own people some people serving life for drug possession locked up here that you wouldn't have to trade a terrorist to get out. And we're not letting them out. Like, how does that make any sense? It's just like the insanity of our country. Like, yes, let's fight to get Brittany Griner out. But while we're doing that so that we're not hypocrites, let's go ahead and release all the nonviolent drug offenders that we have locked up right now. But nope, we're not doing it. And there's places in state people in states where cannabis has been legalized. If they were previously convicted, they're still locked up. If they have criminal records, they still have those records and they're still denied on or denied employment. So these are huge problems and why the war on drugs might come to an end in our lifetime. But I don't know if all of these problems will be weeded out because it's become so infused in, a, in our society, you know, on a level of people's jobs depend on people's imprisonment. We have a prison industrial complex that needs prisoners and you're not going to get enough violent people to fill up those prisons. So you got to find other things to arrest for. Drugs are the answer to that problem that they have. And it's. Right. Yeah, it's another hashtag free Britney. We just got one free. We got to get another free. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and again, she got sentenced nine years. So I wonder if, that, if that's just a negotiation um, strategy, like give her a big sentence so that so they have a tool to negotiate. I imagine she'll be out at some point and that we'll be able to get her out. But they're just because of her celebrity and because of the war in Ukraine and because of the kind of what's going on between America and, and Russia and Ukraine. They're just they're just fucking with us basically what it, what it looks like they want their terrorists back <laughs> yep and we want our basketball player back like what the fuck i never heard of her <laughs> oh, well, I, mean, I, hate to, I hate to say it but nobody had i mean the wnba is subsidized by the nba they don't have a huge following and and it sucks i'm not saying like like anything negative about the wnba but yeah nobody really knew about her and now everybody knows about her because she was arrested and it is sad. It really is that anybody would be locked up in prison for cannabis. But again, we have people locked up for cannabis. So uh, this is a discussion I think that needs to be happening. And then, and when you see in the media, it's what bothers me. They talk about Brittany Griner. They talk about her crime. And I don't see people saying, bringing up the fact that we also arrest for that. That Had she been flying from Russia to her home state of Texas, she also could have went to jail. It's like, uh, she wouldn't have got nine years now. That's that's a big difference there. She probably wouldn't have got any time. She would have got some probation. But still, criminal record, probably not been able to play in the NBA and WNBA anymore. So saying we, we need to look in the mirror. We always like to hate on other cultures and other countries for their policies. And yes, some of them deserve to be hated on. But we never want to look in the mirror. Like when 
I'll never forget when Dennis Rodman, you remember when Dennis Rodman went to uh, North Korea? I don't remember that. I just remember his beard. <laughs> yeah, he went to North Korea because apparently Kim Jong-un, the, the new uh, dictator, is was a huge fan of the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. So he flew Dennis Rodman out and a camera crew went with Donis Ro- Dennis Rodman pretending to be filming Donis Ro- Dennis Rodman, but were really happy to get behind the scenes in North Korea for a Vice story. But um, when, that, when they asked Dennis Rodman how it was, he said, oh, it was awesome. You know, Kim Jong-un was cool, gave him all the food, drink you want, probably girls, whatever. He's like, had a great time. He's like, well, why didn't you ask him about all the people in the prison camps? And he was like, eh, every, every country has their problems. You know, our president got a blowjob in the White House. I'm like, that was your gripe with America? Um, no, that's not the grape. That was your chance to say we have more prisoners than any other country in the world. So that that was your chance to point out something, a systemic problem in our country. And instead, you brought up the blowjob that no one gives a shit about. But <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's get back to your book, because what I'm because you just started going to this big church in Houston. Now I'll say this. Are, are you still are you still religious? Because I haven't gotten to the end of the book. Are you still uh, practicing christian um i've abandoned the uh title i don't go to any churches um as i say i feel like the further i get away from churches the closer i get to god and so um so no i i i i believe in christ the holy ghost god the trinity i do reference the hebrew text that we call the bible to help facilitate my relationship with god but i don't call myself a christian and i do not attend churches well, I do love I love what you said that, that you know the the further you get away from religion, the closer you get to God. And I, I do think spirituality gets lost in organized religion because we start to put structure and rules. We humanize something that's not supposed to be that way, right? But I was raised very uh, Christian. I was a Southern Baptist. I'm from originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, or right outside. And um, my whole family's still very religious, and, and I just I I'm not, and I just I couldn't find myself to believe in the stuff. I find myself getting closer to God through. Uh, psychedelics and when i when i usually don't even use the word god i use the word universe but also some atheists are offended by the word god or they they don't like the word for me it's a great word it's nothing wrong with it also it puts it into the perspective the human perspective how do we relate to to whatever that force is well we relate to it as god and um so yeah i like uh i'm a very spiritual person so and so i so you pray and all these you know still do the christian like prayer and stuff like that well i mean i I do like the Our Father prayer since since it's like Jesus specifically, you know, said for us to say that prayer. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, any you know, prayer is nothing more than conversation with God, and so I mean that can be done anywhere, anytime, any place. Um, for super serious things, yeah, I'll get down on my knees and labor in prayer. You know, if it's like a very intense thing I'm praying for, but um, but I don't believe in like um like how the Catholics have all these pre-written prayers or, you know, litanies or whatever the case may be. So do I still talk to God? Absolutely. Do I need someone to tell me how, what to say to him? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. And, and when I grew up, we never, we never said recited prayers. I don't know if that's a Southern Baptist thing or what, because it's been years, but we just, well, you know, I bet you our preacher did probably read the prayers in the Bible. I just didn't know that that's what he was doing. But when we prayed at home, it was just pray, talk, ask for, you know, you want someone sick, ask for them to get better, stuff like that. And I did pray, but I never felt like it was really doing anything. Once I got into meditation and stuff like that, that's like, honestly, I said this, I didn't understand spirituality until I was out of the church. 
Um, I did, like it just going to church was a very boring place to me as a kid. I didn't get anything out of it. Now you had some people in your life that were uh, very powerful. Uh, what was her name? Um, Eva. Um, yes. Yeah. So you had people that guided you. I didn't have anybody in the church that, that I respected, even my own parents. Like we, we share, um, our, my father was, uh, an abusive alcoholic. And I hate to say that on the podcast cause I, he's, he's really changed and he's a, he's a, just a nice dude now. And he, you know, he just went through a lot and he was not ready to be a father. That's all I'll say about that. But when I, one thing I really connected with you at the beginning of your book is when you talked about how much you loved being at your grandmother's because you felt safe there. And I had that same experience. I loved going to my grandmother's when I was a kid. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly how grannies can be more cool and open-minded than our parents at times. It's like, like granny was came to this earth like in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, she's totally like cool with, with everything. And my parents were the ones tripping. You know, it was my grandmother who would... um. I would whenever my parents would leave the house when I was like four or five, I would put on my mom's heels, her little two inch heel pumps and take my oversized shirt and put on one of my mom's belts and make me a little dress, you know, and twirl around the little <laughs> shack, little shack we called a home. And um, and granny would keep a lookout, you know, for, for, for the parents and everything like that. You know, it's just yeah. like a mind trip. That's that, yeah. They they really. I, I guess as you get older, you get to understanding. For some reason, I don't know what it is. Why uh, people have like they, they want to judge, they want to hate, they want to do all these. It's like they get I don't know a certain anger that you have. But when you get older, you just like what did any of that matter? You start to realize that life's too short to give a shit about things that aren't just aren't important. Like I mean, I'm trying to think of examples of uh, just some of the, well, I mean, for instance, homosexuality, right? That's a big one. Um, I'm from the South. So there was a lot of talk about, like I have family members, there was a, a ballot initiative in North Carolina that was going to make it a constitutional amendment uh, or constitutional, whatever, that get, that marriage was only between a man and a woman could not be homosexual. And it passed. Now, of course, when the Supreme Court legalize it that's no longer the case you can get married in north carolina but until then it was a completely like there will be no gay marriage in north carolina and when my family went and voted for this because they were all about protecting the sanctity of marriage i'm like but this doesn't concern you it has nothing to do with you you're not a homosexual so why do you care like it'd be one thing if if the if homosexual marriage passed stopped you from being able to get married that'd be something you could be upset about but it's not the case so i just don't understand and i think that something happens with, uh, cause the older people in my family, they don't, they didn't feel that way. Right. They just, it was kind of like, ah, eh, like not, just not a concern. And I was you know, talking to, or reading, um, have you ever read, uh, you will know Harari. He wrote this book sapiens about the evolution of our species. And, you know, he said, if you think the omnipotent creator of the entire universe cares about a specific species of, um, you know, homo sapien that's on a planet, that two members of the same sex are, are having sex with each other. If you think that the omnipotent creator of the universe cares about that, that that's his gripe, then you clearly don't understand God. I mean, like, it's just, it's such a strange thing for them to try to point out and say, this is not right. I don't, I don't get it. No, they don't understand God. And they also don't read his Bible or anything like that, because in the Hebrew Bible, they always like to reference the Hebrew Bible as such, because people, especially conservative people here in America, I think forget that the Bible isn't ours. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so um, 
But in there, it talks about how the Lord does have gripes against people who are busybodies who meddle in other people's affairs and things like that. And and that is what the totality of what you're talking about is people who are not minding their own goddamn business. Because, you know, if you're going to sue somebody in court, you can't like go to the judge and be like, I want you to stop Mary over there from doing what she's doing because it bothers me. Like, right. It's not quantifiable. You have to prove how you personally have lost something, you know, or stand a good chance of, like you're saying, you know, what is this going to actually actually cost you? Other than that, you're going to get laughed out of court. You know, you can't, um, you can't just go off of feelings and shit and preferences. And so, but also it's not for us to enforce morality or the will of the Lord. And the perfect example that I, that I use for this is, you know, the, the road to Damascus conversion experience of Saul that they talk about in every damn church. But I'm not as concerned about um, Saul being changed to Paul as to the fact that he was interrupted by Jesus to go do what conservatives are doing today. You know, everything is about perspective. So what Saul did was he went to the Sanhedrin, which was like the religious political leaders of the day to get legal authority to persecute people who were not living up to his moral code. So basically Saul said, those motherfuckers over there are heathen, they ain't acting right. And I'm just tired of them. So I'm gonna go get the law on my side so I can force them and put them in chains and arrest them and fuck with them and make them be righteous. Same thing that's happening today. And then the Lord interrupted him and said, no bitch, you're doing too much. You're being real extra right now. And I never did <laughs> for you to do none of those things. You know, go sit on your ass and um and remember the basics. You know, Jesus taught with simplicity and he just said, if I be lifted up, whoever I decide is who I would draw onto me. He never said go out and force people to do anything. And so people, like you said, don't know the Lord. What they know is bitterness and hate, you know, and rage. And when something makes them uncomfortable, they just want to go and shut it down rather than to get to know it. Yeah. Yeah. And I- and we see like they, they cherry pick the Bible too. They don't the things that that the Bible says not to do. Like for instance, the Bible says, or, and it's not like there's, there are ten commandments in the Bible, and then there are the, all these other verses and things that just have random things like uh, women should not have long hair. That's in there, but the, uh, a lot of Christian women have short hair, and they don't seem to let that verse bother them. Uh, shellfish, not supposed to eat shellfish. And this verse comes back to the fact that it could make you sick back then because they didn't know how to cook it correctly, but. Either way, the Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish. But again, this is something they don't care about. They're going to eat shrimp. They're fine with that. But there's like one verse about a man shouldn't lay with another man. That's the one I hear constantly. It's like, that's the one verse you found. And I mean, we have people on the streets here. Like I live in Fort Myers, Florida, so we a little beach town. And there's this guy that's just out there preaching the word of the Lord every day. But his biggest thing is homosexuality. That's his like number one thing that he can't let go. It's like, why is that the thing? And I hate to say it psychologically, it, it very well might be likely, and it's kind of sad when this happens, but some people that are homosexual themselves that can't face that reality because of whether it's the way they were raised, their family would, would judge them. So they end up hating themselves for it. So they they speak out against it. And I'm not saying, I'm not a psychologist, so it might not be that, but that kind of thing does happen. And that's sad. But for whatever reason, he's just spewing this hate um, against homosexuality. And it's like, there's other things in the Bible you could talk about. And he just, with his megaphone out there every single day, and it's just, I don't, I don't get why that's the thing that so, and now, now also abortion is the big thing that's happening, right? Our whole country's like 
all, and it's all a Christian thing. My family are celebrating. They think they've saved the lives of all these children. And and whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, it's like, all right, you can be pro-life. My sister has been pro-life her whole life, but she is not going to vote pro-life because she doesn't want her beliefs to be put on somebody who doesn't share them. Like She's like, I would never have an abortion for, for her. That's, you know, that is, it's not right thing to do. But if somebody else isn't ready to be pregnant, it's not for her to say that they can't, they can't abort the, or in, terminate the pregnancy. Well, she's a balanced thinker. So the thing is, people have been deceived. Okay, so whether you believe in like God, the devil, negative energy, or whatever the case may be, what I what what I do know is this is that you know when we die, we have an eternity to face, you know. Um, you know, and so if I if I were the devil. And I was trying to, to, to get somebody to go to hell when they die. What I would do is play on their ego and I would play on their narcissism, especially on people who are egotistical and narcissistic on some level and they don't wanna believe that they are. Those people are very easy targets. Um, and I would get them to focus on everybody else but themselves. Um, because what happens is like in the, in the Bible, it says that there's going to come a time where people will stand at the judgment seat before the Lord. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we cast out devils in your name. And we did all of this stuff, you know, and he's going to tell those people to pardon for me. I never knew you. So how does that translate into this life here? People are going to stand there before God and be like, we threw out the homosexuals. We threw out the woman who wanted abortions. You know, everything they're saying is about a problem with someone else. But what the Lord is calling us to do is to read through his word and to get close to him to find out how we can improve ourselves, not to worry about other people. And so what the devil has done, in my opinion, is entered into these weak-minded, egotistical people and played on their pride and arrogance. And because in or the way they prosecute my people, the 2SLGBTQIA plus community, and black people too, because there's places that I can't go, you know, still to this day because I'm not white. And yeah. so, um, yes, indeed. <laughs> and so, and so um, like if I'm planning a trip somewhere, first thing I have to look up is are no queer people welcome there and are black people welcome there? Okay, then I can proceed with the booking. But yeah, I, I, I can't just go off all willy nilly. But um, so, so imagine if you just spend your whole life worrying about what the gays are doing and what the women are doing, and you never really take time to improve yourself. You know, it's a great plan, you know, and these fools are feeding into it, you know, yeah. but when they die, they're not going to be able to stand before the Lord. You know, when your family, they not good, that's not currency to get you into heaven. You can't be like, well, I straighten those people out. <laughs> yeah. gonna... and, that's where, and that's when God says, well, I don't know you. <laughs> That's yeah, like, you don't yeah. know me. You've been too busy doing doing wow. all. Wow, I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to share that with with other people just because that so, so explains so well. I really really like that. Like focus on make your you find God. You get closer to God and work on yourself. Don't worry about other people's relationship with God or with what they're doing. And and it's also live and let live. If if what they're doing isn't personally, if they're not coming into your house and trying to stab you, then just you know let them do whatever they're doing. Same, that's how it goes back to the drug war. If I want to smoke pot, that doesn't concern you. If I want to take mushrooms, it doesn't concern you. And then people always point to like the crime. Well, if you end up 
doing cocaine or heroin and you get addicted, you become a criminal and then it does affect me. It's like, well, if you legalize the drugs, the prices would go down, the crime rate would go down. People would not be breaking into cars to, uh, to afford their addictions if they weren't having to go to the streets for these drugs, which are prices are extremely jacked up because before the drug war, there were addicts and there was no crime from it because they went to the doctor, they got their drugs. Nobody even knew they were addicts. They did their drug. Nobody even knew. And um, yeah, so it's the same thing. We need to let people people need to focus more on themselves. That's basically what, what you're talking about. I mean, it's a matter of checking emotion. You know, I, I was having a discussion with somebody who I'm very fond of yesterday. Um, and I had to really re help to regulate his mind because I asked him like why he thought a certain thing about a certain thing. And he was like, well, I don't know why I just feel that way. And we were talking about like, if he gets older one day, if he would let his kid go to a school where there's like, say, a transgender teacher or something like that. And he was like, no. And I was like, well, you don't know that person. You can't assume everyone's bad. And what, what I'm getting at is that he has like an internalized fear, an internalized disdain, an internalized hatred for something that is not really his own. Because see, we're, we're affected from the time we're in our mother's bellies, from the voices and the energies and the vibrations around us. And by the time we become an adult, half of what's in our head may be the voices of other people, you know, and we don't even realize it. And so I always say we got to know why we believe what we believe. And so, so often when I ask them, someone presents such a strong opinion and I go, well, why do you believe that? And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, I just know, you know, and so when people are like, oh, a druggie is going to rob me or whatever, you know, you don't know that what you are is you're fear mongering mm -hmm. and you're catering to a very weak energy, a very weak spirit that's not going to serve you because you're jumping to conclusions before they happen. And you're also jumping to a negative conclusion of a person could get high and just go sit on their ass somewhere and enjoy, but you, you know, people like that think everything's about them. And then, you know, and, you know, it's a very, very like arrogant narcissistic thing. And yet it's, it's like, it's cloaked and veiled in righteousness, but it's not, you know, uh, when I was strung out on drugs and homeless, one of my siblings, the one that I don't fuck with anymore, you know, they were like, don't come to the house anymore. Uh, don't want my children eating after you since you got HIV and hepatitis B, you know, surely they'll catch something. The kids actually told me that, you know, kids want to keep their mouth shut. They were like, our parents told us not to eat after you. I'm all like, okay, I don't go around sticking my spoons in children's mouths every damn day anyway, but, you know, right. so... But the point was, she, this sibling was like, don't come around here. I'm like, I didn't do anything. Never went over there and stole anything. They just felt like because I was on drugs that surely I would steal. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we have, to, we have to blame pop culture a little bit for that because they've painted the drug user yeah. as an untrustworthy, lying, thieving individual and the thing is even when i was addicted to vicodin i remember once my i was at my grandmother's and there was a whole pill bottle of vicodin sitting out and they were hers and i could have taken a, definitely a few or a whole bottle i didn't take any because it's like i'm I'm not and i actually was didn't have any either i was trying to go through a trial and i was really suffering but it's like the addict has control enough to not steal from his grandmother not every addict there's there's exceptions to these rules but the thing is is most drug addicts are not going to do something like that and most i never stole at all for my drugs um some people do i mean like i say it's hard when you're on the streets or getting drugs on the streets. But yeah, the, the thing that media has painted us to be is, you know, as drug users is just completely false for the most part. The media is definitely 
is the devil. But like I was telling my friend yesterday, although we are mindfucked before we realize it, we always have a choice to become unmindfucked. And so for me, that looks like hypnotherapy and different counseling that I do to, to pay attention to my mind and be sure that I'm controlling it and it's not controlling me. So, you know, I challenge people, you know, why do you feel what you feel? Why do you believe what you believe? Mm-hmm. What churches are like, all gay people are pedophiles, you know, which is why I got kicked out of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, because they found out I was queer, you know, anything, you know, not straight. In, in the church world, it's like either you're straight or you're a pedophile. And I need people to know that they include bisexual, polyamorous, you know, BDS, whatever. If you're not plain old straight to those people, then that classifies you as a pedophile. And so then you don't have to be like twirling around with a rainbow flag on during Pride Month for their hatred and their bigotry to extend to you. So yeah, so I just I just like to make that clear to people and it usually shocks people. I'm like, but you know, they they basically they say we don't want you around the kids anymore because surely you're gonna molest one of them one day. You know, hadn't happened yet, but we just know it will. So like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. I, I you know I you know growing up in the church, homosexuality was not allowed in our church, and it was talked about. Not, it wasn't a big focal point, but if they did talk about it, it was like, oh yes, it's extremely, you know, you'll go to hell and blah, blah, blah. And I remember when I was like, I was probably 18 years old working at Outback Steakhouse. And I remember this guy came in and was, you know, uh, going around, whatever you call it when you go around talking about church, but he was going around trying to get people to go to his church. And he said, we accept all people. We accept homosexuals. And I remember my, my thought, because I had been brainwashed and I didn't really think much about it. Cause I never on a visceral level, homosexuality has never bothered me. I, for gay kids at school, it was never a thing that I was like, that's not right. I didn't care, but I knew for church reasons, I was like, well, if there is a God, they go, they'll go to hell because that's what I was taught. So when he said my church allows homosexuality, I was like, how does that make sense? You can't have a church that allows homosexuals because it's against the Bible. And that was, and then when I thought about it and I, and I was talking to him about it, he like, it just shattered my, I was like, wait, what the hell? Do, I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. This is just what I was pumped into my head as a kid. And until I was faced with it, then I realized, oh, it doesn't even make sense. But, um, but that's what these people think. That's the way they think. Like, like once it's pumping your head, a lot of people don't have the ability to snap out of that, like to, to break the chains of those thought patterns. Uh, we call them like a linguistic cage. People get stuck in those cages that are created through the verbal bullshit that was pumped into them as children. Well, I'm happy you had your eureka moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, and I, like I say, I never once was like, like if there, if there was a gay person who told me like, he needs to get out of here. I never cared. I just thought that it was against the Bible because that's what I was taught. So I thought they, those two things were just contradictory. Also, I didn't like the church either. So I was like, not a church person, but I was like, the church doesn't like those people. But then this church was like, we don't care. It's like, that's that church you're talking about. Our church lets everybody in. I was like, oh, well, that's fucking awesome. Holy shit. You know? Yeah, it's interesting how we can all read. Well, I would say the same Bible. It went for all the different versions of it, but similar Bibles in you know, it's like churches cannot really agree on how to follow God. There's so many different translations of the Bible. There's so many different denominations and this just split. It's like supposedly the same God, but everybody has a different opinion, you know, which is cool. The only trouble I have is when this church over here thinks that every they're the only right ones and everyone else is going to go to hell, you know. <laughs> but again, I think that plays into like the 
the, the, the trick of pride of it all, you know, always needing to feel like you're good because someone else is bad, I think is like a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what it comes down to is that I think if, if, I mean, like I say, if everybody was looking at themselves, then the whole church as a group would not have that opinion. They would just wouldn't have it because it would be about themselves. And if like you went to a church and you're, and you're a homosexual, you would, you wouldn't judge yourself for that. So you'd be fine. And if you went to the church and you weren't, you wouldn't judge yourself for not being, and you wouldn't judge them because everybody was in it for their own spirituality. But the problem with the collective, and I think this is what you're, and it almost sounds like with what you're saying, again, I'm not a Christian. So these things are more metaphorical to me, but, um, like that's the devil infiltrating the church. When you let the collective, uh, the masses of the church start judging different members, that's the devil infiltrating God's church. You could say, you could say that. Um, I would say wherever you have people, you're going to have weakness. Yeah. No, it's when you get into this realm of a of feeling like. Like, like there's not mercy, there's not understanding, there's not really reaching out for diversity. It's, I think a lot of people might start out right, and a lot of preachers and churches might start out right, but then they get corrupt over time as they grow and they gain money and wealth and prestige and power, you know, power over people. Because you have bad shit in little churches and big churches, you know, all around. So has the devil infiltrated the church? I think he was always there, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because it, he's a part of human, or he's within different humans, he's going to be there. But And again, I, I think of the devil as uh, metaphorical as weakness would be an example of devil, right? Um, uh, Weak-willed, things that we can better in ourselves would be, you know, that kind of energy, negative, positive energy, yin-yang kind of thing. Um, I did want to talk to you about one thing before I leave, because when I think drugs and Jesus... I think about the site that the, the theory of the psychedelic church, um, the origin, the original uh, Jesus church was actually a psychedelic cult. Now, this is a theory. Have you heard this theory? I have heard of the psychedelic church before. No, no, no. The theory that Christianity was founded as a psychedelic cult. And then once it went kind of mainstream in Rome, they took the drugs out of it, but it started as actual psychedelic rituals. I hadn't heard of it. Do enlighten me. I wouldn't so, doubt it this time. And what it's really fascinating. And the thing is, when I first heard this theory, I didn't even look into it because it sounded like a bunch of hippies talking about a bunch of bullshit. Like, oh yeah, it's it's a cool idea, but it's probably not true. And then this guy, Brian Murarescu, wrote this book called The Immortality Key. And now they're doing classes on it at Harvard, I was reading, because it was so fascinating. And this is a guy that wasn't a drug person. And that's what helped the cause because a lot of hippies that were into psychedelics have talked about the Jesus cult thing. But for a guy that was just a lawyer that happened to he had studied um, ancient languages and he had studied the ancient Greek culture and he had studied Eleusis and the Eleusian mysteries was a thing he had studied about where these people would go on a pilgrimage in ancient Greece and they would go to this place, this temple in Eleusis. And when they would come back, they would talk about how they were no longer afraid of death, how the life is so, all the meanings that they had found there in a, in a very, very profound way. So, so the, the Eleusian mysteries are, well, what were they doing in Eleusis? And the theory was, they were probably drinking some kind of wine-based psychedelic, and they think it was probably something similar to LSD because the ergot that grew on the, uh, the grain back then had lysergic acid, which is the um, what you use to make LSD. And it had to be a certain recipe, very sp a specific recipe that they had to be using because it gets very poisonous if you don't do it right. So they outlawed um, back then. Whatever the mysteries were, they outlawed outside of Eleusis. You couldn't take the recipe and do it anywhere else. But 
what happens with prohibition is people do it anyway. So there was all these underground churches where people were doing the elusive mysteries illegally. And so Brian Murrieskew Brian was reading this article about the studies going on with psilocybin, the research doing uh, in MAPS and Johns Hopkins. And he's reading these studies and he's like, these people, after they come out of these psychedelic experiences, are saying the exact same things the ancient Greeks were saying after they came out of Eleusis. So he's like, put the strings together. He's like, I think I've found that, you know, almost a a sort of proof that they were doing psychedelics. And then, so one of the fascinating things was they caught these uh, these secret um, things that were happening. It's like almost like little raves that were happening with people doing the elusive mysteries illegally. They, uh, they were called the Dionysian, they were Dionysian parties because Dionysus was the wine God. Now, if you read the Baki, the Baki was written 405 years, uh, 405 BC. So 405 years before Christ. And the Dionysus was the wine god in the story of the Baki. And he was the, the son of a human mother and Zeus. So son of God, virgin mother. And his first trick was he went to a party and the party ran out of wine and he turned the water into wine. So the theory was that when Jesus, 405 years later, was or 400 years later, whatever, was, was uh, when John, the first miracle he did that he wrote about, that when John was writing to the Greeks, he wrote, Jesus turned, went to the party and turned the water into wine. And Byron Rescue's theory is Jesus was doing the Dionysian parties. And because they were illegal, he used code to the Greeks to say, hey, same thing that was happening in Greece, the elusive mysteries, this guy Jesus is doing it back here. And that's his way of telling it, turn the water into wine, was code for these are Dionysian parties. Come and, and and when I say parties, it was more of a religious um, party, you know, more of like a seance. I'm not a seance. What would be the word? Um, you know, like you know, getting closer to God. Everybody taking the sacrament, praying, finding God, and that that was the basis for this church and why it spread the way it did. But eventually, when Rome got their hands on it and turned it into the Catholic Church, it became a very organized. And they turned instead the wine became just grape wine, not psychedelic wine, but. Anyway, that's the basic theory. I recommend the book. It's called The Immortality Key. It's really fascinating. You know, I don't doubt any of it. You know, um, you know, history has been changed so much, you know, oh, especially when it comes to like the Bible and everything like that. So many different interpretations over time. There's a documentary on the Discovery Plus channel right now called The Book of Queer. And they get into like the, the the true queer history of the nation, and you know, talk about how queer Abraham Lincoln was, and all these different people who you never would have thought. And so, and, but they also talk about King James himself. The yeah. King James has to do with the King James version, according to this documentary, was a big old queer, honey. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, um, but it talks about how how it just. You know, somebody who was allegedly queer, according to this research that they did when the Bible was interpreted, you know, put scriptures in there to, um, you know, to bash us and stuff like that. Uh, there's a, a website that I love, 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 love called OverviewBible.com. Jeffrey Kranz, my friend Jeffrey Kranz runs that. And he is a Bible scholar, but he 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 does all these pretty colorful drawings on his dry erase board and it makes me feel like I'm in kindergarten again and I feel so like comforted by that for some reason because he's taking this complex thing which is the bible and making it still like a b c one two three but you know he talks about how it took like what 500 years I think it was to like put the bible together like in terms of all the scrolls and stuff and then 
you know, it's just a complicated thing. And it, it talks about, you know, how the Catholic Church originally had like their 73 books and the Protestants had their 66 and how it's not all included and stuff like that. And so if Jesus turned water into wine and they were in there getting high and turning the fuck up, I don't have any reason to think that that didn't happen because, you know, I've recently realized all the negative thinking that I've ever had about alcohol, sex, drugs, secular music and the stuff we like to have fun with came from the church. It came from our government. You know, it didn't come from me and God never told me that. Yeah. And so who's I said, okay, I'm sure Jesus did turn up. Let the church <laughs> tell it. Let the church tell it. He was just quiet the whole damn time. I'm all like, that's not true. He did other shit because the first 33 years of his life isn't really even, or 30 years of his life wasn't even recorded. Anyway, exactly. You know. What was he doing in the desert? There's theories that he went and studied Eastern, uh, you know, Hinduism and got into Buddhism and stuff like that. There's theories. They don't, they don't know though. They're just, it's a hypothesis possibly, maybe, you know, don't know, but I like, I like what you're saying. And you know, I just, um, if, if Jesus turned up, he probably did. And the church is the one telling us, no, no, he wasn't like that. They make a concern. They have a conservative Jesus. That's their Jesus, but it's not the Jesus. You know, we don't, we don't know. People in churches like to control you, though, because when I was in seminary, I was going to get a master's of divinity and all of that, uh, because I'm, I'm quite serious about learning about things of God in this life. But I stopped because one of the professors, he was just like, we want to control people in church. And he was telling us this in class one day. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was the I was the only one. I was a total minority. My classmates were nodding along like, yep. Let's control these people. And he was like, he just said it so passively. It's like, you know, like the sky is blue and we want to control people. The way the way church leaders think is like they think they know best. Just give us your money. Give us your time. And you mindless little sheep, just pay attention. And we can't trust you to do anything. So although the Bible does not say not to drink, it just says not to drink it in excess. Growing up, they always said, just don't do it at all. But that is not what God said. And so they take liberties supposedly for our own good. But at the end of the day, it's not the fucking truth. And so you cannot trust a church to tell you the whole truth. They're going to spin you a narrative and try to corral you a certain way and stuff like that. You got to seek the truth for yourself. And um, as the Lord said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But he never said you have to wait to get that truth for somebody else. And so one of my biggest prayers to God is that he will reveal himself to every individual person in a unique way that they will know that it's him talking to them without a preacher, without a band, like a worship band, without a big old building to go to, without fancy suits, without tithing and all of that craziness you don't even have to do anymore you know, be it through a psychedelic experience or whatever, you know, that's what I pray for, because I can't expect anyone to believe in a Jesus that's never revealed with himself to them. And the, the preacher is insufficient. Like you need to, like, I, like, I want God to show himself to somebody in a, in a very real way that only that person is going to know that it's God talking to them and they're never going to doubt it. Other than that, then I don't believe in forcing Christianity on people. This is not even a Christian nation. We don't have a national religion. And so this whole that's put righteousness on people, you know, you know, I, I believe in religious freedom. I've studied the other religions and stuff like that. I love going to the Buddhist temple and hanging out with other ball bitches such as myself. You know, it's a great company, you know, 
but you know they don't try to make me worship buddha and I, you know nothing like that you we just have an exchange one of the things i hate the most about the church is they always spend something such uh such an all or nothing zero sum way you know all drugs are bad so just don't fuck with them at all they never told us any positive aspect of it you know all, all alcohol is bad just don't do it all secular music is bad just don't do it every other religion besides ours is terrible i'm like and so I so I don't believe in them because they they only said they're skewed half. Now, if they would have been like, there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. And here's both. I couldn't argue with that. But because they were like, it's all just bills above or throw it out the window. You know, that's why I don't go to churches anymore because they're not to be trusted. Yeah, I think that's what got me when I was young. I was, I was probably like 15 and my parents went through my record collection and started reading the lyrics and t- secular that oh, there's one thing said about hate. There was trash cans. Hootie and the Blowfish was the only CD I had that I was able to keep, and um, definitely not one of my favorites. I was like, oh, so that's the one I get to keep. I remember Jimi Hendrix came in the mail, and my dad said he threw it away before he opened it. He's like, Jimi Hendrix did drugs. You're supporting drugs. It's like he's dead. He's not doing drugs anymore. Like what? But um, but that was when I was like, the church sucks. Because immediately when they threw out my music, I'm like, well, that I cared way more about that. So now I'm out on the church thing. I mean, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my God. Like that reminds me of how um, I had this like demonic horse thing when I was like three or four from Taurus or us or wherever. I came home one day, it was in the trash because it was the devil. They stopped us from watching the Smurfs because it was witchcraft. I mean, you church people are so goddamn stupid and they like make themselves so irrelevant. When I was young, I had a dream because I'm, I'm a very gifted dreamer. My, the Lord speaks to me through dreams. My dreams come true and things like that. And so yeah, I've been that way since I was about four or five. And so, and the Lord was talking to me about like soul winning, winning souls, which kind of what you were mentioning earlier, witnessing, proselytizing. But he was telling me in this dream that in order to win souls, you have to have like a common ground with people. Now, I'm four or five. I haven't been to any kind of sales training courses or nothing like that. I don't know what the fuck empathy is. All I know is Legos and ice cream. And so, but the Lord will tell us something when we're very young, even though it won't be used till decades later. Yet I've never forgotten that dream. But what, what that dream has taught me is just how wrong church, the church is, because you cannot come at people abrasively finding fault and pointing out what's all fucked up with people and trying to say what what you want to change in them before you even say hello and see how they're doing. Yeah. So, so if you're going to ever win a soul for anybody, you've got to come off your high ass horse. You got to humble yourself and just have a conversation with people. You cannot approach people like there's something to be fixed. You know, I hate that. There were times when people would come up to me trying to be friendly and I'm thinking, Oh my God, maybe I have a new friend though. Like, Oh, let me invite you to church. Oh, you were just trying to like warm me up. So you can invite me to your goddamn congregation, you know, fuck you, cunt. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, and so, but when but when they're like that, you know, you take something that's valuable to somebody like their music, you throw it in the trash, you you've invaded their privacy, you've taken away something that that they love, and you expect them to turn around and listen to what you have to say about Christ. No, what it is, I tried turned around and went to my friend's house and copied all those albums onto tapes and hit them under my bed. So you didn't stop me from listening to them, but you did stop me from respecting the church or and you. (laughs) Right. They're so they're trying to be so smart they become dumb. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit more about your book. I want my listeners to uh, check out your book. Now I bought yours on Amazon. 
Um, but where is there somewhere else that you would uh, rather them purchase from? Some people prefer their website. Some people, Amazon's fine. No, so if they go to sexdrugsandjesus.com, which is my website, sexdrugsandjesus.com, I have a universal book link on there. So when you click on it, it'll open up this big window that has all the different places in the audiobook, paperback, hardcover, all the different formats. Because I know some people believe Amazon is Satan incarnate and they will mm-hmm. never ever do business with Amazon. And I would never force anyone to do business with the devil. And yeah. so, no, there's all kinds of um, places, but just sexdrugsandjesus.com and they're all there. Gotcha. And for some people, Amazon's the easiest. They're just, if you're going to be lazy about it, and I, I usually am, I've deleted the Amazon app, tried not to use it, and then I end up getting it back. And also, I, I have Audible, and I hate Audible because I tried to have the other one, audiobooks.com, because I didn't want to have Audible. Half the books that come out are Audible exclusive. So you're like, well, I guess I'm an Audible person now. But, but your book's really good. And um, I love the cover artwork. Got a skull with a cross on it. There are pills and drugs in the inside of the nasal cavity of the skull. That's crow with a syringe on top. Very cool artwork. And um, before, so before I let you go, just to get, I want people to understand, like the book starts out very powerful with you riding around Houston. Um, you just found, I guess, you just found out you had HIV. You wanted to go dance, but now you can't because you feel dirty. And you, and very quickly, you get arrested. And I haven't got to the place where you got clean. So I'm wondering, was that your rock bottom? Was that where things started changing? Was that that arrest, or did how did you how did you overcome your addiction? I would say over time, you know, when I knew to me, someone overcomes their addiction when they realize when they can come to terms with the fact that they have one, and that they know it's time for them to either stop or for sure get it under control, and they're not bullshitting themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was a trip that I had taken to Miami, right? The, around the February that the coronavirus came to town. And I just did way too many ecstasy pills and I gave myself the flu for like a month. And so, and I was just thinking, well, damn, if I can't handle pills and, you know, perhaps I should stop, you know, all the crack and meth and everything else. But the thing is, it's been like a journey. So I've been like back and forth. So then after that, I went and got a sponsor. Then I was sober for like a year and a half. Then I decided that I hated Crystal Meth Anonymous because I realized that they were hypocritical because the shit didn't add up. Like um, telling me my higher power doesn't have the power to heal addiction, that I have to always be one and I have to always call myself an addict that doesn't add up to me. Like either he's all powerful or he isn't. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I didn't like people telling me to stop doing drugs when they are literally strung out on coffee and cigarettes. And so I just, I just had to like step away from that. Then I like rebelled and and then I didn't believe them that, okay, if I go out and do these drugs this one time, I'm going to lose everything. And so, and so I went and tried it and I didn't lose everything. And so I was like, okay, the anonymous movement is really like a fear-based program. And so this feels like I'm back in the damn church again with people trying to not give me the, the freedom to make my own decisions. Just want to make everything for me and make it seem like it's all bad and it can't be good. And I'm like, well, fuck all. This. So learn like more about something different. And so, so I don't know that I. So for me, that Miami experience was like the wake up call, but state of flux because like now like i was saying i did the ivy ketamine thing i'm about to go find me some fucking shrooms and i want to do lsd and mescaline 
I can't really look somebody in the face and be like, I'm sober because I don't use drugs. I am, you know, yeah, yeah. just because the clinical setting doesn't mean that they're not drugs. So I'm not drug free. And right. I don't believe the government gets to be like, this is bad and this is good because our government doesn't know their ass from their elbow. And so they don't get to be like, and the church doesn't either. So they don't get to be like, okay, today weed is evil, but tomorrow it's good. So then all of these addiction programs are going to follow the government and be like, well, today weed's evil, tomorrow is good. No, that has been the same damn plant the whole time. Yeah. The only thing is that man has had a shift of opinion. So fuck all that. So, so I consider myself to be a sober person because I've acknowledged my weaknesses and everything like that. I'm trying all of these drugs. So I don't want to say I'm drug free because I feel like that would be a lie. So I don't really know how to describe where I'm at right now. Yeah, do, you, do you use cannabis? Okay. So I tried um, the gummies for the first time like a week ago. <laughs> so um, I've tried to smoke weed a bunch of times. It never did anything for me. Um, I've, everyone's, I used to sell it all the time, but I was more like a party kid, you know, let's, mm. let's get some G, let's get some ecstasy, you know, that sort of guy. <laughs> so, um, but I was able to, I think, actually get, feel like high from, ca from cannabis for the first time on these gummies though, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and so I don't know when I'll pick them up again or anything like that. Um, but I didn't think it was a negative experience. I found myself laughing uncontrollably at what I don't know. <laughs> yep. But I couldn't fucking stop giggling. And it was like one of those deep laughs from like your soul. And I just was, I don't know what the fuck I was laughing at, but something apparently in my subconscious was funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to answer your question, for the first time in my almost 40 years, I actually experienced the high from that the other day. And I have the gummies in the drawer. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, um, I, I hope you enjoy them because I, I I really enjoy cannabis and and I agree with you. Like the, I went to the twelve step thing, and it's like uh, there there's abstinence only. You can't have any like if you're addicted to Vicodin as I was. Well, cannabis you can't do that either. It's going to spiral you back into your addiction, which is not true at all. Once I got out of my Vicodin addiction, I was done with it. I was like, all right, went through that, and now I can take a Vicodin. I broke my jaw a few years ago, and I took Vicodin for two weeks straight or Percocet two weeks straight. And they would have said, no way. If the doctor had known I was had been addicted, they would have never even gave me it. But I needed it. And as soon as I after I was out of pain, they offered me one last prescription, and I said, no, I'm good. Because I was done with the pain. I didn't want it. And I didn't want an addiction anymore. So this abstinence only for some people, it is the best route. And again, if 12 steps works for somebody, I'm for it. Do it if it helps you out. But for me, I, I found it a lot easier to get sober knowing that I could still do some substances. I love alcohol, cannabis, and I, occasionally I do psychedelics. Um, and I just pretty much stay away from opiates unless they're needed for pain, which now they won't even prescribe for pain. It's just They're just done with them because of their opioid crisis that they don't understand that would end yesterday if they would just legalize and regulate the opioids and give addicts the drugs that they require and stop making them buy them on the streets. But that's my opinion on that one. That's your story and you're sticking to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Devannon, thank you so much for uh, doing the podcast, for being on the Peace on Drugs. I really, really do enjoy talking with you, man. And uh, I will be, I'll be in New Orleans next month with my wife. We're going to a Flaming Lips concert. So I don't know if you're if that way. I'll just, I'll just let you know when we're going to be there if you feel like swinging down for a drink or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm in New Orleans like damn near every week. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and I see if you haven't ever seen the Flaming Lips, I don't know if, or what kind of music you're into, but their their concert is just a psychedelic circus. It's just amazing, beautiful music. But um, they'll be in well, they'll I be in New Orleans. 
if I found my damn psychedelics by then, I'll just come find you and be like, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, I'll, I'll reach out to you. I'll just uh, let you know when, when we're going to be there. And um, and if I don't see you then, it was uh, so good having you on. I'm really enjoying your book. And um, you know, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, if you want to, feel free to to come on my show. I'd love to have you. All right. Yeah, for sure. If you want to set something up, let me know. Um, cool, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And um, again, I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Nice meeting you. All right. All right. Peace, Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram at the Peace on Drugs Podcast. And go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. We're going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. Out. You pay for what you get. You pay for what you can't.